This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Welcome to Bookends with Ruth Todd and Moran Rout. And it's the shortest day, um, Ruth, which oh, gives us so it is. plenty of time for reading. <laughs> the Lots days. more time. The weather gets colder. The, yes. <laughs> and on the shortest day um, is always held the National Flash Fiction Day. Which has become it, so popular. It hasn't has it? indeed. Mm. So today I'm talking to one of the um, a great writer of this particular genre, Auckland writer Leanne Radojkovich. And uh, I have um, a historical novel from the 1890s set in Sydney, and it's a story written by a New Zealander about the only living lady parachutist, uh, and I added in the world, that's not in the title, but it seems in the book that she is that, and um, it's it's a great delight. Catherine Clark is a medical laboratory scientist with a degree in history and English, not the usual combination of subjects, I would think, but uh, after completing a New Zealand Society of Authors mentorship, she wrote as she was writing The Only Living Lady Parachutist, which is shortlisted for the NZSA Lillian Ida Smith Award, and she was chosen for a manuscript assessment in 2016. And here is the book (laughs) this year. How exciting for you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's taken a long time to get it to this point. Well, I'm sure it does take a long time anyway, and you've got uh, another job as well. Um, tell me about the process that you went through, because you did go, you did do all the right things, didn't you? And other people might be interested in that, how you went about going through these steps that you had to get to. And oh, right, yes. When you started, um, I suppose. Where, well, where, where did you start with the research? Yes, um, I read about her on a blog post, um, Scott Hamilton's Reading the Maps, and I think he's gone on to write a book since that mentions her in relation to the Great South Road. Um, and so I'd spent about a year reading through lots of old newspapers, chasing down um, birth, deaths and marriage certificates, And then I started writing it um, just with a rough draft um, and then got the mentorship with um, Shirley Corlett, who took me through sort of chapter by chapter, sort of critiquing things as we went. Um, And then um, when I'd finished the first draft, um, I probably edited it a bit more and then got the um, manuscript assessment, which pointed out, you know, various flaws and things and what to work on. Um, And then after that, I got an agent, um, who a literary agent, who took it on. And so I sort of was hopeful that something would happen then. But um, she wasn't able to sell the manuscript at that point. And in hindsight, I think that still needed some more editing um, in the structure. There was things that I had in the wrong place in the book and so when I then paid for another structural assessment with someone in England called the History Quill and he um, 
pointed out, you know, what really needed doing to it, and so I worked on it a lot longer after that. And um, well, it's been worth it. It's been yes. worth it. It's a wonderful result. Yes. Well, that that's um, it takes a long time to go through all those steps, doesn't it? Mm, yeah. And so you must have really, you must have been de- as determined as your um, character Lillian, um, because uh, she had was full of uh, courage and determination. And um, did you? How, did how did you work the? Basic, you based it on facts, and you've got a factual piece at the beginning of each chapter out of a newspaper, which was really interesting to read. Um, how did you go about writing about Lillian? Did you need to put much fiction into this? Well, it, not really. Like um, Everything, the places she went to and the people she associated is all based on what was in the newspapers, and there was quite a lot of coverage about where she went and what she did. Um, there were some gaps. And sort of, I had to imagine why she would have done that, you know, what led to that sort of happening. Um, So I kind of feel like it's sort of an imagined truth. Um, There were sort of funny little things that happened. Um, For example, one of the balloon managers is Arthur Adair, and I gave him a scar on his chin in the book. And then later on, when I virtually finished the book, I discovered his real identity and I found out that he did actually have a scar on his chin. So Good heavens. I kind of feel like I've got fairly close to the truth. I think you have. I'm sure you have. And um, I just, she's just uh, so delightful. I mean, we've got to remember and tell people that this is in the 1890s. She's living in Sydney and her younger sister Ruby is also um, in the act with her. And she takes on uh, you know, she really works at it and goes to the right people and says, "I I want to do um, something with a balloon and a and a parachute." <laughs> Not too many people would be doing that in Sydney at that time, would they? No, no, she was very unconventional. Um, yeah, but um, I think also um, the crowd, bigger crowds, would turn up to see a woman do this thing because of the novelty of it. There were lots of men. Um, involved in this sort of balloon parachuting craze that sort of lasted that decade of the 1890s, um, but not very many women. No. And she didn't have it easy, did she? I mean, working with those, uh, there were a lot of charlatans around and um, theatrical um, sort of um, showmen who used her a bit, didn't they? Yes, yes. Um, And a lot of them... You know, they were all there to make money, really. Um, yes. And they sort of hyped themselves up and gave a big spiel about what they could do, but often they never <laughs> sort of fulfilled the promise. Um, well, I love yeah. the way that she said, uh, you know, that she'd been born in America and come to live in Australia, mm. and she had a few little stories. Um, yes. And I, lo- I liked the way you planned it because the grandchildren, the two grandchildren, are her two granddaughters are talking with her and asking her about what really happened in your life because they obviously didn't know too much and um, mm. and that was a lovely way to do it because they're sort of sitting having a con- you can imagine them sitting having this conversation and what an amazing grandmother we've got <laughs> yes. so I, yeah. I, that was a good way to use it use that as a, in a novel I thought and mm. also um, she had 
I think we can mention her brother. She was haunted by what happened to him. I won't say what happened to him, but fairly early on in the book, um, he'd had a terrible accident, and and uh, she was haunted by that. Yes, um, and I, I was never really able to find out the exact circumstances behind that. Um, there were no newspaper reports or inquests um, or anything, but I kind of imagined that as her motivation for what she did because me personally, I can't imagine why anyone would want to do such a foolhardy and risky thing as jumping from a balloon with a parachute. No, nor yeah. can I. I <laughs> not even in 2021. Um, mm. And so she she went through, in her career, she went through three phases, didn't she? And had two children with Harry and who really wanted her to stay in Melbourne and and um, get married, but she wasn't the marrying kind, really, at that stage anyway. And she went, her mother helped her with the children. She went to, came to New Zealand. So uh, that was lovely to hear about her time in New Zealand, but the weather was like it is in Christchurch today. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> right. They had a yes, lot no. of um, false starts, didn't they? Mm, yes, she spent virtually all of 1894 touring around New Zealand. I think she gave um, exhibitions in about 22 towns, all sort of linked by the railway. Um, well, but that, I think part huge. of the problem was she didn't have a very good crew with her that were experienced in getting the inflation of the balloon right. And so a lot of her ascents went wrong um, and people felt, sort of felt short-changed. They would be given a free pass to come back, which she would do the next descent, but sometimes she would skip town and not complete her promise. But um, when she was successful, um, you know, there was a lot of enthusiasm for her, um, but she never actually managed to get the balloon inflated well enough to do the parachute drop Um because yes, of the that was of it. <laughs> that was sort of the beginning of the end, really, wasn't it? Mm. Um, you know, um, for her, but she 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 kept going. That's what I liked yes. about her. She was yes. so, very ambitious and so determined, and she really outfoxed these guys who were really, you know, taking money from her. Yes, yes. and uh, she was still there. <laughs> and, yes. Um, the independence, I think, was you know, huge, what she was huge. aiming for, to, to have control of what she was doing rather than doing what other people told her to, to do. That's right. Yeah. And she's, yeah. you get this picture of such an unconventional woman in the 1890s, and that was in New Zealand. We were sort of following. I wasn't there, of course, but we, the New Zealand women, were following Kate Shepherd and gaining the vote. And um, I do nothing about. Uh, that's all I know you about the early eighteen nineties in Australia and New Zealand. But in, in Australia, um, we wouldn't have had anything much like that in New Zealand, would we? Till she came across. No, no. Um, her sister had been for a very brief tour of Southland a couple of years before, which they did in the middle of winter, which <laughs> meant that it wasn't at all successful. Um, it was too cold to inflate the balloon. Um, but yeah, her year-long tour was a big thing. Um, there had been an earlier um, demonstration by Thomas Baldwin, who was a fairly famous balloonist. He'd been to Auckland. Um, Christchurch and Dunedin but 
they, they were fairly short tours. Um, and I believe so. you've written a history of um, early hotels in Wellington. Um, I just did a little blog post about that. Um, mm-hmm. Quite often in the newspapers it mentioned the various hotels she stayed in. Um, and so I'd sort of seen photos of some of those. But in Wellington, um, it didn't um, didn't say where she was. Um, I found a letter that her manager had written to the city council asking to use the basin reserve. But I um, kind of like to imagine that um, she'd stayed in a hotel that was once owned by one of my um, ancestors. And so I tracked oh, really? down where that hotel was and what had happened to it. Um, it was called the Eagle Tavern. But um, whether she actually stayed in there or not, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, it adds to the story. <laughs> You've obviously got a real feel for research and, and your... Um, uh, you know, ability to write a novel, uh, and Lillian couldn't have been a better choice for your first one. Are you going to do more? Are you going to um, give up your day job? And <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, I, I kind of feel like this story was a bit of a gift because when I found out about it, I could just see the sort of the arc of the story right there. I didn't really have to invent too much. I could follow the facts. Um, well, thank and you. I, yeah, I love doing the research more than the writing, so I don't have any plans for anything further. <laughs> well, I hope I, I hope it's not the last, and uh, you've gotten a real gift for doing the research, and have you done it brilliantly? So, congratulations! And um, oh, your publisher you. is Idle Fancy Press, is that right? Yes, yes and, and uh, it's available through Nationwide Book Distribution. And it will be in all good bookshops, I'm sure. Yes, I yes. Hope so. <laughs> yes. So, The Only Living Lady Parachutist is by Catherine Clark, and it's a great read. Thank you, Catherine. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. Hey, Oman. Mum and I caught the bus to visit Auntie Joyce on Saturday mornings. Joyce wasn't my real auntie. I just called her that, out of manners. Whenever we visited, she was mending or making gowns for boring dancing. Liquid fabrics shimmering full of sequins. She'd talk with pins in the side of her mouth, and when the pins ran out, she'd fit a cigarette into a holder and light up. She let me play with her offcuts. I'd feel her glances, if looks could kill. Of course they couldn't, but they could brush against the back of your neck. They could caress your cheek. The last time we went, it was winter. The cold made ringworms on my thighs and there were huge sooty clouds overhead that crashed and sparked. We got out of the bus and hurried to Joyce's. I held Mum's hand tight. We waited on the porch, the temperature plunging between one knock and the next. There was a strange hush as if the clouds were sucking up air and then hail shot down. The smell of knives burst from the concrete path. The door opened and Mum pushed me inside. Hale crackled against the windows. Joyce dashed down the hall and opened the back door. Pallets popped and clumped onto the patio. I squeezed past her and crouched down to touch the magic I'd never seen before. I'd never seen snow either. Come back, Mum called. Let her enjoy it, Joyce crouched beside me. We were both getting wet. Her mascara smudged and a crumb dribbled down her face in a black tear. Joyce and I began squashing Hale into a mound until there was a soccer ball. It needs a head, she said. We scooped together a smaller ball and plonked it on top. 
A snowman, I squealed, a hailman. I snapped off flowers for eyes and a twig for a nose. Joyce pulled brass buttons from her pocket and poked them into the face, and the hailman smiled. I watched her hands, the same as mine. Narrow, fingers slim as chopsticks. Her wrist had the same bony knob on the side. I felt queasy and leant against the wall. Joyce felt my gaze and caught it. Her pale eyes darkened. They made me think of the steel mirrors in school where all you can see is your shadow. She stood up and whisked down the hall. Mum tried to pull me inside, but I wouldn't leave the hailman. The popping stopped and turned into rain. The hailman began melting. Half his body sheared away and the head rolled off. Soon he was only a puddle. I picked up the brass buttons and slipped them into my pocket. That was Leanne Radojkovic reading from her new collection of short fiction entitled Hailman. Leanne is a librarian. She works and lives in Tamaki, Makoto, and she's had work anthologised in Bonsai, Best Small Stories from Aotearoa, New Zealand, and Best Small Fictions 2021. Leanne, there's something quite exquisitely sad about a lot of your stories. Oh, thank you, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, that's the way I meant it. Um, yeah. They're, they're poignant, I think, perhaps, rather than yeah. sad. Um, there's a lot of, of pain there, um, the, the, or, you know, I guess people are, are remembering their loved ones who have died or are dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I better not keep trying to character, <laughs> characterise them. But, but do you see that in your own work? Um, yeah, well, I think, I think life is kind of full of heartbreak, all these many instances of it in a lifetime. And I, and I think the challenge is how to balance that with all the wonderful things about being alive. So I think... I, I do I do agree with what you're saying. There is a poignancy there, and I guess it's just trying to address the bittersweet kind of way that life is, or how I feel that life is anyway. And that that story in particular opens up so many, um, you know, vistas when right. when the the narrator notices the hands are similar. And then they're pulled away from that, and that just tells you so much in such a in such a, a brief and and careful moment. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> and small fiction is is a wonderful genre for for um, you know containing so much in in such a such a brief form. Yeah, it's a lovely kind of distilled. Um, writing um, form. I, I'm really attracted to short fiction. I've loved it ever since I can since I was about eleven, actually. And um, I was an enormous reader and was constantly running out of books. So I'd, I'd steal my sister's books to read, and she was a lot older than me. So um, I'd just go into her room and steal them and run away. And they had adult themes, of course, because I was so young. And I can't say I understood the adult themes, but um, she loved translated fiction, and so. I soaked up Colette and um, Guillermo Passant, and I was just so happy in the world. So it's a scale that I really enjoy inhabiting as a reader and a writer. So, yeah, that's I know what you mean. It's the, the distillation. There's, there's a real specialness about short stories. 
There, I, I'm lucky that I often have um, short stories at my, you know, amongst the books that I that I gather or have sent to me, and there's such um, there's something tremendously satisfying about about being able to read them. I think I read your collection when I was flying to Auckland, and um, in in that space, an hour and a bit. I I got so much out of each story, and I was taken from one scenario to the other. Um, it was it was perfect for for a situation like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I kind of think of short stories as as, as shapeshifters, or I, I hope that they are, because you know you think you you know what you're reading, and then the story seeps out of the margins or the shadows of a piece, and in the end, um, you kind of realise something new that you weren't expecting to realise when you started on that little story. So, and I think really with novels, I get so sunk into them. I, they they soak me up, whereas I feel like I can soak up a short story and hold it, hold it in my heart and in my mind and sort of uh, replay it and... and um, think about it a lot it it just draws me in it's they're just so enriching the little stories yeah yeah I was going to say that they're, they're refreshing in the in the best sense of of giving you that that lift that um yeah that that moment of being taken out of yourself you grew up in yeah. Kirikiriroa Hamilton and I Having um, grown up in the Waikato myself, there were, oh, right. there were sort of the river, the the um, the rural nature of of a lot of your stories are set in. Well, they yeah. alternate, don't they, in small mm. towns. Uh, yeah. There's a there's a lovely sense of of the communities that people have grown up in in yeah. these stories. Yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm attracted to small towns, small towns and suburbs, really, and just ordinary lives. Um, yeah, that's what attracts me, um, the magic in the ordinary, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. the people are people you recognise, and you recognise what what stories they they contain within themselves. One of my favourites was Missing, about these two... <laughs> Oh yes, <laughs> slightly exotic people who come to. I'm sort of imagining it's a town like Narawahia or something like that, Huntley, and uh, and uh, are suddenly there and all their colour and vibrancy, and then they've yeah. gone. They've gone, yeah, but they've left an incredible imprint. And um, yeah, the, the exotic nature of these people when they come through—they only ever seem to pass through, but. Uh, as they pass through, they really, they really do affect people and make you question things. The world becomes bigger because of it. Yeah. Tell me about the Emma Press um, because it's, the book is beautifully printed and it's got this yeah. very subtle graphic um, motif that you continue through the book. Yeah. Um, the Emma Press is a wonderful indie um, publishing house in England, and it was founded about 10 years ago, I suppose, and I just found, I don't even know how it happened, but I came across a poetry book they published ages ago, and I love these production values that you're talking about. Um, it's beautifully produced, it had a kind of artisanal flavour and lovely art, and... Um, 
So I started subscribing to the Emma Press because, and I love the poetry as well. And then after a couple of years, Emma put out a call for uh, manuscripts for um, fiction. She was going to move from poetry into fiction, and I, I put in a, um, a manuscript. She accepted it, and so this is the second book that um, she has published of mine, and um, each time I've been so happy with with everything. She's so lovely to deal with. Um, it's a very welcoming press, and I mean, she's published a lot of books, maybe 50 books, principally poetry, but um, also, um, you know, fiction, and now also essays. For example, she published Tiny Moons by um, Nina Minya Powell, another um, Aotearoa author, and that's done really well. It's been on the best-selling list um, of London Review bookshops for ages. Um, so, yeah, uh, Emma Press are putting out beautiful books, um, and I hope they continue to do so for ages. And this means that this has been published in, in Britain as well? Oh, yeah, this is published in Britain, and then, um, but, you know, that's where they're from, and so they send the books over to New Zealand. But anyway, they've actually published um, authors from Latvia, Indonesia, I mean, quite a few countries. So That's wonderful. British press. Yes. Yeah, so you, yeah. So you get this, not just, you know, New Zealand readers can access it, but people... yeah. In, in other countries, by the sounds of things. Yes, that's right, yeah. She's sort of international, but oh. um, based, she's based in England, yeah. And also your um, your heritage. There's, um, there's a story in here called, let me find it, the Villa, the Villina oh, Vlas. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's not really my, it's kind of my heritage, I suppose. My family came from former Yugoslavia and um, I've always been very sensitised to war because uh, my father came here in 1939 to escape World War II. He was just a kid really and he had to go up on the gun fields and my grandmother and aunt um, had were lived in a refugee camp in Egypt for two years. So all these stories of war have really, really left a mark upon me and one day I was just reading a Sunday newspaper article about this place, the Vilina Vlas Hotel, and um, actually it said in, it's in Bosnia and it's a, a real place where real terrible things happened. It was turned into a rape camp in the um, Bosnian Wars and I just couldn't leave, couldn't leave this article alone. It just totally like struck me, struck me to the spot. It was awful and kept working away inside of me and it felt like I really had to do something with this huge emotion I felt as a response and over time it emerged into a story and I feel like I put my feelings into the story so um, that's how that came about really although there are other kind of war flavoured stories in the collection as well that one particularly is um, the um, Bosnian Wars yeah well, it's a remarkable yeah. story, and um, and it's a remarkable collection. So well done, Leanne. It's um, it's a beautiful book to own and to dip into. The book is called Hailman. It's by Leanne Radojkovic, and it's published by the Emma Press. 
Tonight, uh, Tuesday, the shortest day, is the National Flash Fiction uh, Celebration of this wonderful genre. It's on at Turanga at 6pm and all are welcome. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.